Open your Bibles to the book of Joshua, to the ninth chapter where I will be preaching this morning. It is nice to see each and every one of you on a sunny but frigid day. If you know me um, pretty well, you would know this about me, that I love movies. I love movies so much, and my wife doesn't love movies, so I see most movies by myself in the theater. Is it, do we have any other solo movie theater goers? Bryce? I love all, I love all sorts of movies. I, I, I'm, I'm not a snob when it comes to movies. I mean, I'll do the superhero movies. I'll do animated movies. I'll do long three-and-a-half-hour drawn-out Oscar. I mean, I'm all over the place. And so one of the favorite kind of movies that I enjoy um, is is the Mission Impossible franchise. I I love the Mission Impossible movies. And and in in Mission Impossible 3, which I think is is one of the, the better of the Mission Impossible movies, in Mission Impossible 3, it opens the movie with Ethan Hunt, and he's the main character in the, in the Mission Impossible movies, it opens this, uh, the opening scene in the movie has Ethan Hunt chained to a chair with a gun against his head being threatened. And you're like, what in the world? How in the, it, starts, it starts the movie off this way. And what it's doing is it's, it's giving you a, a point in the movie that's actually something that happens later on in the movie. But the point in, in doing this, the, the director's strategy in, in showing this point right at the beginning of the movie is to ask yourself, how in the world did he find himself in this situation? What in the world? How could Ethan Hunt, of all people, be facing certain death? It's absurd. And as Christians... We've been in such seasons, haven't we? Now, I'm not talking about being chained to a chair at gunpoint. Hopefully that doesn't characterize your week. I mean, have you ever found yourself, Christian, in a season where you ask yourself, how in the world did I end up here? How did I get into this mess? I mean, have you ever found yourself desiring, feeling, or doing the types of things that are so far from God-honoring that you're just shocked, that you're just ashamed, that you're just scared for your soul? Anyone? Anybody? Just me? See, typically, we don't just find ourselves there when we wake up one day. If we're honest in such seasons, when we look at our lives, we've, we found this, that we've stopped being steadfast in our faith. We've taken our eyes off Jesus and we just, we coast. And in such moments, we don't explicitly seek out to just commit sinful desires and actions. Don't we just wake up and do that? We just forget the Lord. Perhaps you're in that season, or perhaps you're trending toward that season right now. Perhaps you've just come out of that season. 
Well, the Lord has given us one solution to fight the flesh, friends. One. And that is to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. I've got one main point this morning. It's this. Because we are prone to deception, we must fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Because we are all prone to deception, we must fix our eyes and our hearts on Jesus Christ in the Scriptures. Hopefully you've made your way to the book of Joshua chapter 9. This morning I, by God's grace, hope to preach through the chapter in totality. But when the inhabitants, so please follow along as I read. But when the uh, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals on their feet and, and worn out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where did you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set uh, out to come to you. But now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were, were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their, their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Tephira, Be'eroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, 
We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to us, uh, to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in a place that he should choose. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture. There's a lot of different elements. I won't get to probably all of the questions that you have this morning. I've got, I've got one element of the text that I really want to, want to focus on this morning, and, and even some aspects of the text that I will get to next week that I will draw on upon chapter 9. So um, if, if most of your questions are not answered this morning, I'd invite you to come back next week or to come on Wednesday nights, and hopefully we'll get to discuss them more. But point one this morning is this. We must understand that we are prone to deception. We must understand that we are prone to deception. You are, I am, we are. In chapter 9, it really begins a a new section in the book of Joshua. You might recall that that the book of Joshua is primarily about how God fulfills his promise to give the land that he promised to Abraham and his descendants in the book of Genesis. This land, it was promised to them, but it it was to be received by faith. If they trusted God, they would receive the land and they would prosper. If they didn't trust God, God would bring judgment upon them. And so the first few chapters of of the book of Joshua highlight the faithfulness of God in bringing them out of wandering in the wilderness and into the promised land as they crossed over the Jordan River. And once they are in the land, what we see is this. We see massive victories against Jericho and the people of Ai. And so we can see why at the beginning of chapter 9 that it tells us that all the kings of the surrounding areas sought to band together in order to try and and defeat the nation of Israel. Now, of course, these surrounding nations, they, they weren't just aware of what the Lord did through the people of, of Israel to Jericho and to the people of Ai. They were also very likely aware of what Yahweh did to Pharaoh in bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt in, in the book of Exodus. And, and what, what they saw was this constantly, is that no one, not one person, stood a chance to stand against Israel because the Lord God was on their side. 
And even today, the world is full of such kings. They are outwardly antagonistic towards the Lord and to his covenant people. They, they band together to rage against the Lord, to criticize the church, and to make a mockery of his creation that points to his glory. Such people in our culture, they do not hide their hatred for God. Uh, they, they might couch it as some hatred in general of religion, but when you really talk to them, they hate the God of the Bible. They hate the one true and living God. They write books to try and dissuade others from following Jesus. They make movies celebrating the things that God hates. They write public policy that contradicts God's holy, righteous law. They take even the most basic things in life, such as biology, and create all sorts of false gods seeking to glorify man as they shake their fists constantly and openly against the Lord God. And it's already been seen, said many times in, in Joshua, but it's worth noting that God isn't even phased by such people. He's not phased by kings that hate him and rage against him. In fact, Psalm 2 says this, that God laughs at such people and their feeble efforts to mock him. Such people don't stop the Lord from building his church. Such people don't snatch a single Christian out of Jesus' hand. Jesus' lordship is in no way threatened by antagonistic people towards the Lord. In fact, if you look at church history, such outward hostility towards the church actually seems to increase the fruitfulness of the church. You see, the true church typically isn't taken captive by such philosophies. Typically, these, these outward ideas and these, these outward expression of just rage. See, why? Because, because their enemy is so blatantly and obvious in their face, typically Christians can discern right and wrong when it comes to just open, vile practices. For instance, you typically wouldn't see a really godly Christian succumb to themselves, to bring themselves to the elders and say, you know, elders, I really think we should add drag queen story hour to part of our children's curriculum. It's, it's absurd. It's, it's quite stupid. Why? Because the enemy in that moment is just being so obvious. We know to stay away from such tactics. We don't take the bait. But what happens when the enemy is more subtle? You see, we must understand that the enemy's most common tactic against you and against me is the art of deception. He is a deceiver. In fact, the first sin that ever took place in all of creation is as noted in Genesis 3, was based on an act of deception by Satan himself. He deceived Eve. He twisted the word of God. And she ate 
the forbidden fruit. Then Adam took the forbidden fruit and ate as well. And you know the rest of the story. And Satan has been deceiving mankind ever since. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Friends, do you, do you know how lions hunt? Lions don't just come running out in the open in a big field to attack prey. That's not how lions hunt. You don't, you don't see that on, on, on the Discovery Channel. Lions, they hide in, in, the, in, the, in the bush. They're sneaky. They, they wait for their prey when, when they're not looking and when they're least expecting it. And at that moment, they devour their prey when they aren't being watchful. This is how our adversary works, friends. He doesn't come in with an atom bomb seeking to destroy us. He comes like a lion waiting in the bush, waiting for us to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ. Then that's when he seeks to attack. And in verse 3 of our text today, we encounter the Gibeonites. And see, the Gibeonites, they, they were a bit smarter and, and a little bit more strategic than the rest of the kings of the region. He said they, they actually, I believe, had the same sinful, rebellious, God-hating hearts as the other kings. But they were able to be a little bit more incognito about it. You see, verse 4, it tells us this, that they were cunning. This means that they were working in a crafty manner. They were engaged in, in trickery. They sought to deceive the Israelites for their own self-preservation, for, for their own gain. And so let's, let's examine their strategy. Look at the text. Verse Verse 4 tells us this. It says that they went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn out and torn and mended with worn out patched sandals in their feet and worn out clothes and all their provisions were, were, were dry and crumbly. Needless to say, these Gibeonites, as they approached the people of Israel, they didn't bring their Sunday best. Instead, they actually wanted to come across as, as well-traveled as possible. They were distinctly trying to look as though they had come from a faraway nation that took a long time to travel to to get to the Israelites, not like one of the surrounding nations. Then in verse 6, we see that the Gibeonites lied to Joshua and the Israelites and that they actually said that we are from a distant land and that they desired to enter into a covenant with the people of Israel. Now, as you're reading it, you might wonder, why are the Gibeonites trying to, to, to make a covenant with the Israelites while the other surrounding kings were going to war openly towards the people of Israel? You might also wonder why they went through the trouble of presenting themselves well-traveled to the Israelites. You might also wonder why they insisted on describing themselves as from a faraway land. For that, we must... Understand God's commands to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20. They're in your notes if you see it, but you can, you can turn there if you like to, to Deuteronomy 20 verses 10 through 15. In Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 15, we see that the Lord allowed the Israelites to make covenant peace with nations that were far off, outside of, of, of the promised land, really. 
If Israel went up to a far city to conquer it, they must first offer peace to such cities. If that city accepted peace, they would ultimately serve Israel as forced labor. If they rejected peace, Israel could wage war against them and they could take over their city. Yet, Deuteronomy 20.15 explicitly says that such a relationship was only allowed in cities that were far off. Important to understand that. What is perhaps the most relevant information for our study this morning is written in verses 16 through 18, though. There we read this. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. You see, we must understand this, Christians, that God was intent on giving his people the whole land as an inheritance. Only his covenant people were meant to dwell there. They were meant to dwell there as a light to the nations as they lived lives consecrated to the Lord as they lived according to his righteous law. There in the land, they were to reflect his character, his rules, his statutes, his, his, his wisdom, his justice. Therefore, no pagan nation could dwell with Israel in the land. If they remained the word of God tells us this, they would always be a threat to the corporate holiness of Israel. Not only that, but Deuteronomy 7.2 explicitly commanded Israel not to make covenants with the people of the land or show them any mercy whatsoever. Therefore, we understand Joshua 9. We need to understand this that Israel was explicitly not allowed to make peace with nations in the land. They were to devote them to complete destruction. And apparently, this was a well-known law to the rest of the people living in the ancient Near East. They understood Israel's statutes. They understood Israel's law. At least the Gibeonites seemed to be aware of it. They knew that if Israel truly knew who they were, they were doomed. For instance, if you've seen Joshua 9-7, the, the, these, these people, the Gibeonites, it identifies the Gibeonites as, as the Hivites. The Hivites were part of the people that were explicitly mentioned back in Deuteronomy 20 as people who were, be, who were to be devoted to destruction. In fact, if it, the Israelites were a bit perplexed at first. In verse, in verse 7, they basically say, you know that we can't make a covenant with you if you live among us, right? You understand that. If you're living in the land that God promised to bless us with, we must devote you to destruction. Therefore, they sought to identify as a group of people, the Gibeonites, who were from far away, 
in order to make peace with Israel. Again, notice in verse 8 that they knew the law in Deuteronomy. They didn't come asking to be trade partners or military alliances. They identified as what? As servants. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 20 said the nations who were far off, who made peace with Israel, would be. Servants. Still, Joshua is a bit skeptical. He seems to ask the right questions. He says, who are you? Where are you from? And the Gibeonites, they say, oh, we are your servants. We have heard that the mighty Yahweh, when what he's done, and we desire to make peace with the people of Israel. Now, now come on, let's, let's make a covenant. Let's make a pact. Not only that, but they desperately provide more false evidence. They say, look at our old bread. Look how old this bread is. They look, oh, look at our wineskins. They're, they're, they're bursting. Oh, look how old our clothing is. How could we not be from a faraway country? We've provided all this evidence. How could you not trust us? Well, we can look at verse 15 and, and see that Joshua and the leaders of Israel, they bought the act hook, line, and sinker. They were deceived. They received some of their provisions and swore to allow the Gibeonites to live. In fact, notice the language that the text uses. They made a berit, or, or, or a covenant, with the Gibeonites. In fact, the text is, is most literally this, that they cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. And verse 16 tells us that it wasn't long before the Israelites found out that they were deceived. The text tells us that, that they became aware that the Gibeonites were a part of the nations that lived in the promised land, and in response Verse 17 tells us that the people of Israel took it upon themselves to travel to the cities where the Gibeonites lived. It would have been about a five or six mile journey. And presumably, it looks like the people of Israel had the intent of attacking them and putting them to death because, because verse 18 explicitly tells us that the people of Israel did not attack them because Jewish leaders held them back. And it was at that point, standing in the land of the Gibeonites, that the leaders told the Israelites that they had made a covenant to the Lord not to attack the Gibeonites. So the people of Israel understood those implications. And how did they respond? They grumbled. They murmured. See, those who were responsible for shepherding Israel failed. They failed. They failed to protect their flock. They failed to lead the Israelites in righteousness. Their faulty leadership led to consequences not just for them, friends, but the nation as a whole. See, previously we saw God's wrath come upon the Israelites because a few people decided to keep some of the items from the pagan nations that were devoted to destruction. Now, we find the nation of Israel was bound in a permanent covenant with a pagan nation. Far more serious than what we saw a few chapters before. To my fellow elders, this is sobering. This is sobering. To husbands and fathers, this is sobering. To those that lead or have authority in any capacity, this 
is sobering. We need to understand this, that our actions have a dramatic effect on those we lead. Dramatic effect. The things that we say and do can lead to great blessing among those we lead, yet they can also lead to great damage. We can lead those under our care to thrive. We can also lead them to destruction. To our congregation, I, I ask this. I would ask you to pray for our elders. Pray that we would lead in a way that honors the Lord. Pray that God would keep us from stumbling. Wives, pray for your husbands. Pray that the Lord would sustain them and to keep their way pure. Children, pray for your parents. Pray that God would give them wisdom and that they would obey the Lord. And the word of God also calls us to pray for kings and authorities over us. May we pray that the governing authorities would, would rule with justice and, and with fear of the Lord. You see, what we do matters. It matters for us. It matters for those in our care. It matters for the glory of God. Yet, the failure of Israel's leaders wasn't so much about what they did. It was about what they neglected to do. See, there, there are many observations that one could make about this text. There, there are many takeaways. But there's one main point and one main problem that is found in verse 14. Joshua and the leaders of Israel did not seek counsel from the Lord. If you're an underlining person, underline that verse. That is the point of this passage. They did not seek counsel from the Lord. Instead, the leaders of Israel, they relied on their own insight. They trusted their own wisdom. They found comfort in their past success of dealing with previous nations. They, they looked at their current station in life, one of prosperity, and they just began to coast. And I don't care who you are, that is a bad place to be. You see, the Bible has absolutely nothing good to say about people who trust in their own wisdom. Nothing. Consider this. Proverbs 28, 26. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. But he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Proverbs 26, 12 says this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. But I don't want you to get the impression that, that our biggest problem is that we're basically ignorant. Instead, our motives and our hot heart postures apart from the Lord, they're also wicked. It's not just that we're ignorant, it's that we're wicked. Consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9, you know this verse. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 14, 3 says that all men have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. 
There is none who does good, no, not even one. See, friends, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we don't coast towards righteousness. When we take our eyes off the Lord, we live according to the flesh. We gravitate towards unrighteousness, foolishness, and destruction. And that is true of all of us. We are like a big truck with misaligned wheels. And if you were to take your hands off of that truck with misaligned wheels, does it continue on the straight path? No, it goes right into the ditch. See, but in our flesh, we hate the idea that there is, apart from Christ, nothing good in us. We hate that idea. We abhor the thought that our motives might be impure. That our lifestyle choices might be an abomination before the Lord. Our theology flawed. Our worship might be self-exalting. Our good works might be filthy rags. Our opinions might be in line with Satan himself. Our ministry strategies might be unbiblical. We hate such notions because we live in a culture that promotes autonomy and self-expression above all. In the world that we live in, no one is permitted to question your authenticity, your beliefs, or your choices. And sadly, such worldly wisdom has crept into the church. And I just want us to know that the Bible doesn't speak of man positively in any way apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Not at all. The world screams how good man is, how basically good man is, and, and those who are evil and vile, those are few. But apart from Christ, we all stand vile in the eyes of the Lord, which is all that matters. See, the Bible rejects self-sufficient people. The Bible rejects people who lean on their own understanding. Instead, the Bible calls us to a constant, never-ending dependence on Christ for everything and in everything. As Pat has said the past two weeks, this doesn't mean that we let go and let God. No, dear Christian, hear me. We are in all things to cling to Christ. This involves actively pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ in his word. Isn't that what we read in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Brandon read it this morning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. All your heart. With all that you are. Trust the Lord, Christian. And do not lean on your own understanding. Don't trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Now, when we read this, we might misunderstand the point of the verse. We might misunderstand what acknowledge means. It doesn't simply mean to acknowledge him like, oh, yeah, God, you're here. It doesn't mean acknowledge that he's simply exists or that he's powerful. It doesn't mean acknowledge that he's, that he's sovereign. Instead, this Hebrew word for acknowledge, it means to take notice of. I'm going to actively look into God's sovereignty and lean into God's sovereignty and meditate on God's sovereignty for the purpose of actually hearing from the Lord God. But it means to acknowledge him. 
in everything we are to do, in everything and every day, we are actively to pursue the Lord God and his wisdom in everything. This is exactly where Joshua failed. As the leader of Israel, Joshua was commanded to seek the Lord. In fact, you may, I haven't gone over this in, in, in Joshua yet, but, but in, in Joshua's commissioning in, in Numbers chapter 27, we, we read this in Numbers 27, 21, that God called Joshua to stand before Eleazar the priest who would inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. As his word, they would go out, and at his word, they would come in, both Joshua and the people of Israel with them. What's that mean? It means that the, the, the Lord's will was for the Israelites to come before the high priest Eleazar when there was an important decision to be made. And the Lord would, would supernaturally guide the Israelites with the Urim, and they were to make important decisions which way they should go. So if they sought the Lord through his given means, God would have supernaturally revealed his will to them. If they sought the Lord in such a decision as to make a decision, I'm sorry, to make a, a covenant with a foreign nation, the Lord would have certainly revealed that the Gibeonites were trying to deceive them. Instead, they relied on their own human wisdom and they were deceived. Christians, Joshua's guard was down. He was coasting and it caused him to cozy up to pagans who did not have the best interest of the Israelites or the glory of God in mind. He rested on his own wisdom and it allowed a snake into the house. The Gibeonites did not have a righteous fear before the Lord. They did not care to make much of his great name. Their main concern was self-preservation at all costs. And that's why in verse 22, Joshua inquires of the Gibeonites as to why they would deceive the Israelites. In verses 24 through 25, they said, Joshua, you got to understand, we feared for our lives, yet now we live. So we're fine with that. Whatever you ask us to do, we'll do, because living is better than dying. You see, there is an act of common grace that God gives the Gibeonites here as their earthly lives are preserved. Yet we must not mistake the Gibeonites as righteous people who came in to the fold of God's people. It can be easy to mistake the Gibeonites as similar to Rahab in a few chapters earlier. You might recall that Rahab was described as living among the Israelites to this very day. Even the book of Hebrews, it points out that, that Rahab was a woman of exemplary faith. But how does Joshua describe the Gibeonites? In verse 23, Joshua pronounces the Gibeonites as cursed because of their deception. As, as Deuteronomy stipulated, these people would never be more than slaves for the rest of their lives. Their lives would be dedicated to hard manual labor. What's interesting is the Hebrew word here for cursed that describes the Gibeonites. It's the same word in Genesis 3.14 that the Lord uses 
to describe Satan's punishment for deceiving Eve in the garden. They were cursed, not blessed. See, it's already been said today, but deception was Satan's strategy in the garden. It was Satan's strategy in ancient Israel, and it is Satan's strategy today. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He has one strategy and one strategy alone to deceive us. And you might ask, why? Why does Satan try to deceive us? Why? It's because we are so easily deceived. That's why. And some of us need to be reminded of that this morning. We are easily deceived. And I want you to take ownership of that this morning, that you are easily deceived. I am easily deceived. Even the smartest, godliest, most impressive among us are easily deceived. We are deceived into thinking that sinful thoughts and actions will fulfill our deepest joys. We are deceived into thinking that taking up our cross and following Jesus, it's not worth it. We are deceived into pridefully thinking the best about ourselves and the worst about others, leading to division. We are deceived into believing all sorts of false gospels that magnify man's efforts and minimizes Jesus' atoning work on the cross. We are deceived into thinking that our sins won't have consequences We are deceived into thinking that evil is good and that that good is evil. And I could go on and on and on. And I know you can look at your, your life with specific examples and look at the many ways and times that as you've even followed Jesus, you found yourselves in seasons that you've been deceived, that you've bought the lie, that you ate the fruit. The question is, how do I prevent myself from being deceived? Point two, we must constantly seek counsel from the Lord through his word. We must constantly seek counsel from the Lord through his word. That was Joshua's problem. He did not seek counsel from the Lord. And unlike the leaders of Joshua, of Israel in Joshua 9, we must constantly seek counsel from the Lord. Now, we do not seek the Lord's counsel through a Urim. That's not how it works. We do not seek out prophets. We do not pursue new revelation. Instead, the Lord has given us the written word of God to equip us for all that we need in life. And so in our remaining time, I want us to briefly consider two passages of Scripture that hopefully exhort us to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ through the Scriptures rather than relying on our own feeble wisdom. Let's do that. The first passage, both of these passages you'll be familiar with. Both of of these passages we read in the pulpit all the time. The first one is is Psalm 19. nineteen. Turn your Bibles to to Psalm 19. I I want you to see this. We won't look at the whole psalm, but we will look at verses 7 through 13. We must take our eyes off our own efforts, our, our eyes off our own wisdom, ourselves and our culture. We must fix them on the word of God. Why? Why should we fix our eyes on the word of God? Well, Psalm 19.7 says this, 
it says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's perfect. Perfect. It's not like an encyclopedia or history book that's constantly getting changed and and getting twisted and getting missed. No. God's word straight up is truth. His word is truth. Unadulterated truth. It is perfect. And as we gaze upon it, what does it do? It revives the soul. It restores the soul. Literally, it's caused us to turn back. To turn. To turn from our feeble ways. To turn from all of the stupid things that we do. It restores us. It revives us. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It is right. Making wise the simple. I I don't care if you're ignorant of of history. I don't care if you're ignorant of how to make money in this world. Or you're ignorant how to climb the corporate ladder. If you're ignorant of how to fix a car. Or ignorant of, of so many different things in this world. If you know the word of God and it is written on your heart and you meditate on it, dear friend, the Bible would say that you are wise. That you were a wise man. That you were a wise woman. That you are a wise father and a wise mother. The word of God, it makes one wise. Even the most simple man, wise. The precepts of the Lord, they are right. Rejoicing the heart. Do you find yourself this morning despondent? Do you find yourself this morning sad and depressed and anxious? Do you find yourself disturbed? Dear friend, look to the word of God as Christ is magnified and it will give you reason to rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. You see, when we open the word of God, we see truth. It shows us in our proper light, and it shows the world in its proper light. The world is not something to be desired. This world and everything in it, every system, every dollar will burn one day. will be done away with. It'll show us this world, pursuing the things in this world, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. When we come to the word of God, we see truth, and it enlightens our eyes. The text tells us this, that the fear of the Lord is The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, unlike anything in this world. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Sometimes it's hard in life as we're walking to know what the right thing to do is. I don't know what I should do. And so we'll go ask Instagram influencers and Google search and, and, and friends and, and blah, 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 blah. Turn to the word of God. His word is always good. It will lead us where we need to go. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Oh, dear friends, we all need a good warning every now and then, don't we? When we find ourselves driving towards the ditch and coasting, 
We need our eyes on the word of God that call us to repent. To turn from our stupidity. And to walk in ways that are righteous. To turn us from theological error that would allow us to see God as he truly is and worship accordingly. And in keeping them, there is great reward. As we read the word of God, we see what is truly valuable, what is truly worth pursuing, what brings true joy that is following Jesus. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. You see, as we read the word of God, it reveals this about us, that we have a great propensity to sin and that we are in deep need of God's sanctifying work in our hearts. We do not come to the word of God and properly understand it and properly believe it and come away with the conclusion that we are self-sufficient. doesn't happen. Next, I want us to consider turning your Bible to 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, 12 through 17. In 2 Timothy 3, it starts off by describing the sinfulness of humanity in the last days. And, and, and you can read this description throughout the rest of your week. But as, as you read that description, uh, tell me it doesn't describe our society. But then we read in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So as, as we're seeking wisdom from the Lord, as we're seeking His ways and His word, this doesn't mean that life is going to be free from trial. Walking wisely doesn't, it won't, won't prevent suffering in your life. And we see that from Joseph, who was a righteous man. And what happened? Trial, 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 trial. While evil people and imposters will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You see, a life of giving in to constant deception and deceiving others, it describes evil people and imposters. We should not be content with being deceived. That should not bring any amount of comfort. Just because we're prone to deception, we should not use that as a well, if we're all deceived, that's fine to be deceived. No. We pursue the Lord in his word. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Continue in truth, Timothy. Continue in the teaching, Timothy. Set your eyes upon the word, Timothy. But notice this, and you won't get this really from your English translations, but, but the whom, knowing from whom you learned, it is plural. He didn't just learn it from one person. It's from one. In other words, the word of God was studied among the people. And if we see that in Acts, the word of God was studied among the people, among the church. Beware of just you and your Bible and Google. Beware of just you and your Bible at your desk at home. Get together with the people of God and study the word of God together. 
That would be my encouragement to you. I'm not smart enough to be with just me and my Bible. And neither are you. I'm not wise enough. I'm prone to deception. I'm prone to twist the scriptures for my own benefit. So are you. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Everything. That's all you need. You don't need a 401k. You don't need a doctorate, an MDiv. You need a Bible. I don't know how many times in life I've seen Christians, especially myself, especially myself, begin to seek God's wisdom after they've felt the consequences of trusting in their own stupidity. And we look back and we say this. We say, Lord, if I only would not have taken my eyes off of you, God, I would do anything to have gone back and to put my eyes on Christ. If I did, I wouldn't be in this season. I can imagine Joshua saying that. Lord, how could I be so foolish as to have relied on my own wisdom. You see, consequences have a way of humbling us. And the word of God tells us that he disciplines those he loves. He disciplines us for the purpose of reminding us that we are always in desperate need of him. Yet, perhaps you find yourself in a season that you deem pretty good. Your marriage, your health, your bank account, and your reputation are stellar. And like the Israelites, you're doing pretty well right now. Listen, be very careful. Be very careful when things are going well. See, it is typically in such seasons where we are the most deceived. We are the most self-reliant. That is typically when our hearts are the most prideful, the most self-righteous, the most critical of others, the most envious, and most apathetic towards the Lord. In such seasons, we are prone to forget the Lord and to rely on our own wisdom. Be very careful. Do not continue on that path, friends. Today, hear the word of the Lord. Repent of your self-sufficiency and seek the Lord Jesus Christ through the scriptures. Don't just seek to understand. Seek to know. Seek to treasure. Seek to worship the Lord, to bow before him, to obey him, to love him. Pray that the Holy Spirit would do what only he could do And work in your heart to make you desperate for Jesus Christ. See, friends, we have everything we need in the word to walk wisely, with joy, with confidence, with boldness, and with discernment in this life. Why? 
because the word of God constantly puts King Jesus before our eyes. It strips us of all self-sufficiency and points us to the fountain of sustenance. It humbles us as it points us to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It increases our faith as it reminds us of his providence. It convicts us as it reminds us of the spotless lamb who was slain for our sin. It strikes fear into our hearts as we remember that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus Christ. It increases our love for God as we are forever reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ who gave his life for us so that we might live. It increases our hope as we're reminded that Jesus defeated the grave once and for all, and he rose on the third day. You're in desperate need of the word of God in our lives for wisdom, sustenance, obedience, for all things. Let us hear the words of 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let us all hear this this morning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands Take heed, lest you fall. Take heed, friends. Community Bible Church, take heed. Husbands, take heed. Fathers, take heed. Single people, take heed. Students, take heed. Elderly people who have walked with Jesus for decades, take heed. Reject self-sufficiency. Reject it. Reject your experience. Reject your supposed wisdom. And look to Christ. Look to Christ this morning in his word. Amen.